0: We're going to Hebrews. Let's go to Hebrews. Uh, During our absence, as you know, there's been the ongoing ministry of the Word, and I just thanked Pastor Craig Brown for recording on Friday, and he has recorded many messages, as you know. Pastor Brian Messick did, I think, about 20 of them on Christ and the Passover. And our wild man... If somebody's shocked at Emory's messages, I love it because I can, I can quote Jesus. Who did you go out to see when you went to hear John the Baptist? Somebody dressed in delicate clothing? So I appreciate that. Also, my brother in grace, Phil Henry, has been steadily preaching, bringing powerful messages, power messages, especially the Say What series on Gehenna, versus hell and he's making some wonderful headroads there too. And then again there's Ricky Martin whose parish is the world. And I think all the nations have heard from you, Ricky. And I've always said and I mean it, and I'm not kidding, his ministry has far more power and impact than the one the Lord has given to me. And there's there's reasons for that. And I won't give them all to you now, but that's true. So, and I thank you for all of your steady faithfulness to the word. Today, we're face to face. And the message today will be entitled Face to Face with Redemption. Face to face with redemption. We are entering into a phase of the heavenly homily called Hebrews. My friend Ronnie is here today. He told me to spend the rest of my life in Hebrews, and I think that might be exactly a calling from God because of the significance of this homily for our time because we live in a time not only of upstepped adversity but upstepped spiritual combat, which is why it's so important to equip our children, the young people, with the word, with the shield of faith, and for their generation to come. And we are in a very critical time between what I call between the radical alterations, the radical alteration of our situation because we've been reconciled to God in Christ. The other morning I woke up with a question on my mind. I think it was the Holy Spirit. And the question, or at least inspired by him, the question was, if God reconciled the world... In Christ. If God reconciled the world to himself in Christ, then who in the world is he gonna send to hell? You can use that, Phil. No copyright on that. That's you can tweet that or whatever. Thank you. I need the credit. I gotta have the credit. The second question was, and there's Potter's Shed. They're testifying to this, Bill and Stan. Stan, I called you Stan. I didn't call you Satan today. I called you Stan. I know. it's All right, Satan. Satan's here. The second question is, if God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their sins to them, then who in the world does God impute sins to? And if Jesus Christ is the only elect one who was elect to eternal life for all humankind and rejected by God as the only rejected one, then who in the world is God going to reject? And who in the world is God elected? But us all. So today, face to face with redemption. And we've prayed... So we'll get right to it. The proper appropriation of true doctrine... Don, it's good to see you down there, too. Right in your same spot. The proper appropriation of true doctrine has a humbling effect. It should have a humbling effect. The misappropriation of true doctrine, or the wrong perception of it, or the assimilation of false doctrine leads to the false way The way of Cain leads to pride and arrogance, judgmentalism, bias, ressentiment, proud exclusivism. So let's humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may lift us up to view a still wider than before horizon And to discern more clearly the infinite dimensions of the love of Christ and of the love of God in Christ from which we can never be separated. And so, to be filled with all the fullness of God. So once again, Father, we can't help address ourselves to you. It is with this in view that we present our body to you, that we entrust our spirit to you that we commit our soul to you, a faithful creator, that we give our hearts to you to be taught of you and transformed from one degree of glory to the next by the spirit wherein there is true liberty. The best way, and I really went through this for a long time and a lot of arduous hours just to get to this one thing, but the... The best way, I think, of gathering up the themes that we're faced with in our next great section of Hebrews, we've already gone through Hebrews 7. 8.1 to 10.18 is the critical central part of Hebrews, and it's going to be the most critical teaching we've ever had from this pulpit, I think. The best way that we can gather the themes that we're going to be faced with in this next section, 8.1 to 10.18, is by the consideration of what I call upper blade data. Upper blade data is what I get when I study theology. Our next door neighbor this week always wants to meet when he's in town from California. And he said he wants to talk philosophy and theology. And he said to me, how do you keep on studying theology? How do you remain motivated? And I said, first of all, I spent many, many years, and still do, studying the scriptures and taking the scriptures seriously. And then I said lovingly, I recommend you do the same. And memorizing, but more than memorizing, committing to my heart these things, treasuring the scriptures. And I still think that's one of the most essential things we can do in this life, if not the most essential thing. Then I said, when I started to seriously study theology, it wasn't me studying men and women who came up with these ideas, it was a dialogue between the scriptures that I had in my soul, and that I had treasured for decades and decades, a conversation with those theologians who make very strong points and who do a thesis here and a thesis there, and I—and so as we've said in our scissors analogy, you can call me Rick Scissorhands today, but. Our scissors analogy, the upper blade data is these statements made by theologians, whether it's a thesis like we're going to look at today or a principle or something they've come up with. And the lower blade data comes up to meet the upper blade data. The lower blade data is the scriptures. And so I do that together so that I can really see what cuts it. What is it that really cuts it? What's the truth? What's the reality? And so. It dawned on me then as I answered my next-door neighbor, this is how I've been motivated, because it's a conversation. And ultimately, it's a conversation with the Lord himself. Lord, what do you think of this? And how should I frame this if you want me to preach? And how should I look at this? And so today, the best way, I think, of gathering up the themes we'll be faced with in our next increment is from a thesis written by Bernard Lonergan, one of my most respected theologians, And he wrote this thesis 15 from his book on the redemption, which I'm grateful was translated from the Latin. And he says, redemption, and I hope you'll pay attention to this, denotes, the word denote means signifies, redemption denotes not only an end, end, like objective end, I don't need that today anyways, an end, but also a mediation, Two things about redemption. It denotes or signifies an end, meaning a goal or an objective, and a mediation, a kind of a means of getting to the end. So redemption denotes not only an end but also a mediation, namely the payment of the price. The payment of the price. That's what redemption is, the payment of the price. Christ the mediator's vicarious passion and death on account of sins, and for sinners, our high priest's sacrifice offered in his blood, his meritorious obedience, the power of the risen Lord, and the intercession of the eternal priest. All these things in that one thesis are precisely what we're about to deal with in Hebrews. I'll read it again. Redemption denotes not only an end, but also a mediation, namely the payment of the price. Christ, the mediator's vicarious passion and death on account of sins, we determine to know nothing here but Jesus Christ and him crucified, and for sinners, for our high priest's sacrifice offered in his blood, his meritorious obedience. We're going to be face-to-face with Christ's meritorious obedience very soon the power of the risen Lord, and the intercession of the eternal high priest. So meeting this upper blade data, that's the upper blade data, Thesis 15, the redemption. We meet this upper blade data with lower blade scriptural data. And doing this, we're prepared, I think, to agree with Lonergan's thesis that redemption denotes or signifies not only an end, but also a mediation. And that the mediation that redemption signifies is by the payment of a price. Now, here's how you meet lower with lower blade data, such an upper blade data as that thesis. This is how I do it. I see the payment of the price And then I think of, well, that makes sense based on 1 Corinthians 6.20. You have been bought with a price. The Greek word is times, T-I-M-E-S. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, which belongs to God. 1 Corinthians 7.23, don't ever become the slaves of men again if you were once, or are, because you have been bought with a price. t i m e s. Furthermore, in Psalm 48, let's make that Psalm 49, 8 and 9, the Septuagint of Psalm 48. In Psalm 49, verses 8 and 9 in your English Bible, the scripture speaks of the impossibility of a man ransoming either himself or another. Since, says the psalmist, the price, same Greek word, times, T-I-M, long E-S, the price of redeeming him is too costly. Nobody can pay that price. Not even dollar bill. Your value hasn't gone down a bit in my eyes. That's a wonderful verse, by the way. So, whereas it is true that no human person could ever ransom or redeem himself or his brother, as it says, Jesus is the divine human being... Who is not ashamed to call us all, all human persons, his brothers and sisters, he has redeemed us with that unspeakable price, with that incalculable and even incomprehensible price that was paid for us. We're going to be learning in the near future about why, did, why does it say that Jesus took on the likeness of a human person? Why the likeness? Why not just he became a human person? Because he didn't become a human person. He was a divine person and was still a divine person when he took on human nature. So he looked like a human person like every other human person, but this one is a divine person with a human nature. And he's called the man, Christ Jesus, because he is a divine person with the likeness of other human persons but no human person could ever pay the price of redeeming his brother or himself but one who is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters redeemed us as a divine person with a human nature that he assumed in his incarnation we'll get more to that next, maybe next week when we are face to face with the love of Christ so He redeemed us with a price too costly to comprehend. He is, after all, God's indescribable gift. Relate gift and price. When you talk about God's gift, it's unspeakable, indescribable, unimaginable, incomprehensible. I had to look up a lot of words in the dictionary to try to get what that means. <laughs> so, it's related to the incomprehensible, unspeakable, unimaginable gift of God. On top of this, the apostle Peter wrote, still doing lower blade data, I'm having a conversation with the upper blade theologian, upper blade theology with my lower blade data. Peter wrote, to the elect in Jesus Christ, the resident aliens of the dispersion in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, For you know, said Peter, that you were redeemed, you were redeemed from the empty livingness inherited by your ancestors. That isn't Judaism inherited from the Jewish ancestors. That's a way of living in life under sin and under the fear of death and under Slavery to sin and the flesh and the fear of death and other people and what other people think and political ideologies and all the stuff that's circulating today. Not a slave to any of that. We had and we inherited a life that's empty and vain from our ancestors beginning with Adam. We were redeemed from that vain and empty livingness by not silver, not gold. Not corruptible items like that, but by the precious blood as of a lamb without spot. Christ Jesus. Paraphrasing 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Precious is the word timio. It's just like timace, only this time it's an adjective. So price is right in there. Julie, price. Price is in Julie, too. She, you've been redeemed with the price, Julie. And you're precious beyond rubies. You know that. No, you don't know that. I'm telling you that. So, blood like that of a lamb without defect. Defect is amomas. It's the same word used in Hebrews 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself to God without blemish, without defect, without spot, purify your conscience to serve the living God? Purify your conscience from dead works, which I define as Christianity today, almost, in a lot of places, dead works, not motivated by the Holy Spirit within, done for reward, done for recognition. And I'm not broad brushing all Christendom, I'm just saying that God needs to, and God is initiating a conversion in the church. To bring us up to a higher horizon, but it takes humility on our part. That's First Peter one eighteen, one eighteen 118 and 19. So you'll note the linguistic, and you'll have notes on this, but they're going to be a little bit delayed now because now we're meeting together, so there's a disadvantage for those of you that think there's disadvantages of not meeting. Here's a disadvantage of meeting. i got to do the notes later. So you'll get the audio-visual first and then the notes down the road. But you'll get the notes, and in the notes you'll note the linguistic likeness of the noun timace and the adjective timeo or timao in the word price. So all this is going to the price that was paid in Lonergan's thesis. I'm having a conversation. As indicated by our brief reference to Hebrews nine twelve, for example, and to 14, Jesus, our great archpriest and God's lamb, it says, Of him he entered once and for all. We're going to see that ephapax. That's a key word in Hebrews. Once and for all people for all time. Once and for all people for all time. He entered once and for all people for all time into the heavenly sanctuary, having secured eternal redemption, eternal redemption, eternal redemption, not by the blood of bulls and goats, talking now about the price again that was paid, and calves, but by his own blood. Moreover, the payment of the price is understandable by noting that Jesus Christ endured the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. But the death that he's talking about isn't just we pass off the scene through physical death, which is our way of permanent change of station into the presence of Christ. He's talking about a death that bears the consequences of sin where sin would have taken the human race had it had its way all the way. We can't even, again, comprehend that. If you still think there's a post-mortem punishment for people, I got news for you and a challenge for you. You have the wrong value of the cross of Christ. You do not value the cross of Jesus Christ as you ought to. That's the problem. And to you, it's still an offense. The offense of the cross, you know what it is? People always say, what about, and they think of the worst person in history. Well, here's the scandal of the cross. The scandal of the cross is that God reconciled the worst person you can think of in history just as much as he reconciled the most pious person you can think of in history. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's the change of situation. You say, I don't see it. I don't believe it. My morality doesn't allow me to see it. My conscientiousness doesn't allow me to see that. Who cares? The Bible says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And that God has made Jesus Christ himself to be our redemption. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, matched with 2 Corinthians 5.21, I'm on a tangent. So, the wages of sin, he endured it. How did he do it? When he endured the death of the cross. That's not, oh, he endured crucifixion. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people endured con- crucifixion. You don't see much writing about it because it was so offensive, so morally offensive, so horrific to even consider all the details of crucifixion. It began in Persia and went on, of course, up to Rome and is still practiced today in certain pagan areas that call themselves religious. His wasn't any old crucifixion, as horrific as that was. His was the death that bore the wages of sin for the whole human race. The death of the cross, not any old cross. The cross, not any old death, the death. The only person God ever rejected in the human race is the divine and human person, his own son, Jesus Christ. If God reconciled the whole world to himself, then who in the world... I can't say who in the hell, because that wouldn't work. Because if there's a hell, there was only one person that ever went there, and it's the same one that God rejected his own son to reconcile the world to himself. You say, that's too much for me to bear. Well, you better bear it. I don't say grin and bear it, but bear it, because the church is going to have to bear this, or this country is going to be buried under the evils that are coming our way, the adversities that are coming our way, and yes, judgment. The final judgment was the cross of Christ, but there are still historical consequences endured in history, and... This is the kind of revelation accepted by the people of God that can turn the tide away from the destruction of this, for example, this nation. And I think that's significant because this nation, we call America, has characteristically, whether people want to admit it or whether they hate America or not, it has been characteristically a beacon of blessing for the nations by the grace of God. Not because we're a special nation. The only line I like from some of these songs that we sing all the time, besides the national anthem, I love that one. But besides that, I love this one. God shed his grace on you, on thee. God shed his grace on thee. I am what I am because God shed his grace on me. I got nothing. I've got nothing to recommend myself at all. That's why I'm free. I'm free because I'm the product of free grace. The same is true for you, whether you know it or not. The death of the cross, Philippians 2.8, Hebrews 12.2. He endured it, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Guess what the wages of sin were for? Guess who they were for? Everybody. For all sinned. And come short of the glory of God. So the wages of sin was meant for everybody. So what's the gift of eternal life meant for? Who? Everybody. Sorry I mispronounced that, Pastor Brown. That's everybody. Not everybody. Everybody. The wages of sin is death for everybody. Everybody. Endured by Jesus, who paid the price. So, the gift of God, which is unspeakable, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord for everybody. You're preaching universal. No, I'm not. I'm preaching the gospel. It's just the gospel, it's the gospel. Well, we have the gift of tongues, so our gospel is the full gospel. No, your gospel is a gospel with a lot subtracted from it. Like, oh, the gospel. Maybe you should stop wagging your tongue and listen a little bit to the word of God. Now. The gift of God which is God's gifts to all human persons in Christ, all human persons in Christ, the divine and human person, the divine person with the human nature, is precisely the wages, the payment of the incomprehensible price. I say all human persons, not only because as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Well, that just means all who are good, all who behave, all who believe, all who are in Christ. No, it doesn't. Do us all a favor and stop being stupid. I forgot, I can look at the camera too. It means all. The same all of the humanity that is in one representative named Adam is the same all of humanity, only now they're in the one representative, Jesus Christ, the only one God ever rejected, the only one that ever became sin for us so that we all would be made the righteousness of God in him. The reason why the country's going down and the world's in a historic downtrend is because this gospel isn't preached, something else is being preached. And people meet together. Oh, we assemble together. For what? Why? Well, we have the Eucharist, and we, have, uh, we express our gifts. And the preacher preaches 20 minutes till the alarm goes off, and then the deacons escort him off with a hook. And if he ever mentions some of the things you just mentioned, he'll be fired. Good, maybe he should just get fired up. Now, I realize why the messages are so short, Emery, when we're, it's just you and me. Because I see people's reaction now, and it, so it makes me go off on these tangents. Before, I was just looking at Emery, and he was back there, smiling sometimes. And so I didn't see any of you. Now I see you, so I'm going into this oh, wait a minute, I see a look on your face, I'm going to have to answer that. (laughs) Jeremiah was told by God, don't be afraid of their faces. Now, believe me, I've seen from faces, people who smile like this, they smile, and afterwards they criticize the hell out of you. And I've also seen people and said, what is it on that man's face that I see today? Let me think. I've seen it before. I've seen it on a face of a man who told me he was going to kill me, literally. It's a look of homicide. And then the guy comes up afterwards and says, I've never heard a message that motivated me so much in the love of Christ. So you can't go by faces, that's my point. I look at Emery a lot, and he's got this horribly grumpy look on his face. And at the end he goes, that was a good message. No, I'm only kidding, he didn't. I can see you back there. I can even see Michael. So, just get back to the word, Rick. Okay, on top of all this, God has made Jesus to be sin for us. That's incomprehensible. But he's also made him to be redemption for us. And he has made us to be God's righteousness in him. This is the justice of God's grace. You want the lower blade data? That's 1 Corinthians one thirty, matched with 2 Corinthians 5.21. For now, grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life. Righteousness here is gracious justice. Grace now reigns, reigns supreme through Righteousness. On top of this, speaking of redemption as indicating a mediation. Now, we're going to go into a second phase, and then I'm going to phase out. Redemption, also in this thesis, is that it speaks of a mediation. Jesus is said to be, this is going to come up in Hebrews 8, the mediator, mesites, of a new covenant. A new covenant made in his blood. Makes me think of Hey Jude. Better, 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 better. Remember that line in Hey Jude? You don't, what's wrong with you? It's the best Beatles song ever after back in the USSR, which is where I think I wake up every morning lately, but that's another one. Better, better, better. It says better, better, better. Think of McCartney singing that. Because in Hebrews 8, 6, it says, but now Jesus has obtained a better ministry Inasmuch as he is the mediator of a better covenant enacted on better promises. We are face to face here today with better things. Better, 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 better. Got to admit it's getting better. It can't get no worse. Another Beatles song. Hebrews 9, 15. Therefore, based on the offering of himself to God without spot by the eternal spirit, I'm picking up from verse 14, and based on the blood of Christ, which decisively purges the conscience, and because through his own blood he secured eternal redemption for us all in Hebrews 9:12, he is the mediator of a new covenant. And again Hebrews 12:22, but you have come, you have come. You're not going to, you have come to the mediator of a new covenant, Jesus, and to the sprinkled blood, the witness of his redemption of all. And one more time from 1 Timothy 2, there is one God and one mediator, Messites between God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. He is a man who is seen on a mobile chariot throne who had the radiance of Yahweh and the form of a human person. But he was not a human person. He was a divine man from eternity. And this divine man became flesh like ours. He took on or assumed a human nature. He assumed a human nature like ours without stopping being divine so that we could also partake of his divine nature without stopping being humans and without becoming divine persons. And so, that's again a hint of things to come. There is one God and one mediator between God and humanity. That means all of humanity, not some of humanity. The man he, who gave himself, it says, who gave himself as the ransom price to free all of humanity. Redemption is the payment of a price in this passage of the pastoral epistles as redemption is the paying of a ransom price. Now, here's a trick with this paying of the price because there's so many people that are so terribly offended at the penal substitution, they call it. We don't want to talk about penalty or punishment or price being paid or blood and sacrifice and, ooh, you know what, go take a leap I'd say go to hell, but, you know, that doesn't mean anything anymore. There were debates in the patristic era. If this is the payment of the price, who'd he pay the price to? And so you get all these, the scholastics in the Middle Ages, that's when Thomas Aquinas came up, Peter of Abelard and all these other people, they started to have these academic debates. Who'd he pay the price to? Did he pay the price to God? Did he pay the price? No, he paid the price to the devil. Because the devil had us, so God had to pay Jesus Christ as the ransom. The point is, with this, paying of the price doesn't have any application to someone to whom the price was paid. The whole point of the price is the price was paid to secure our redemption. It doesn't have anything to do with who it was paid to. So all those debates are useless. To whom and to what Jesus paid the ransom price doesn't belong to the metaphor. The paying of the price is a one sided transaction. The fact remains that Jesus gave himself to release us from slavery to sin and sin's consequences. Under the consideration of our high priest's sacrifice offered in his blood, in Lonergan's thesis, however, it is to God. When you're dealing with the price, he doesn't pay a price to anybody. He pays a price to secure our freedom. He doesn't pay it to anyone. But when it comes to the word gift, or sacrifice, or offering, he offers the gift to his father, to God the Father. In what another... Theologian calls satisfaction for our sins. He makes satisfaction for our sins, which we'll come up with another day also. So the fact remains that Jesus gave himself to release us from slavery to sin under the consideration, therefore, of our high priest's sacrifice. It is to God that Christ offered himself and his blood. In the analogy of sacrifice, the one to whom the sacrifice is offered is an essential element. But in the payment of the price, the one to whom the price is paid isn't even part of the argument. The emphasis is on the price, Christ Jesus and the blood that secured our redemption. You have the notes to look over on that. Hebrews, in fact, in the central section of Hebrews, Hebrews 8, 1 to ten eighteen, is an eloquent in this regard about all this. For Hebrews 9.14 again says, and when I used to live in a Christian commune in Burlington, Vermont, our pastor, who was a hippie from Redondo Beach, and I went to my first service there in bare feet and in unrecognizable garb as a person mistaken to be a hippie. And One of the first memory verses we were given is Hebrews 9.14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The reason I know that now is I memorized it back in 1973 at his church at the bottom of College Street in Burlington, Vermont, in a commune, a Christian commune, my first church after the Catholic Church. Now, Hebrews 9, 14. Actually, Hebrews 9, 11 to 14 is the dead center of Hebrews, and it's all about a lamb, a spotless lamb. Just like the dead center of Romans 8, 31 and 32, God didn't spare his only son, but freely gave him over on behalf of us all as a lamb, meaning a lamb. A lamb is at the center of Revelation. A lamb is at the center of John. A lamb is at the center of Hebrews. We are face to face with the lamb who is the apocalypse. The lamb is the apocalypse. The lamb of God who took away the sin of most people in the world except the ones in history that you think are the very, very worst. No, no, the lamb of God took away the sin of the world. So who in the world's sin did he not take away? Furthermore, he took away the sin of the cosmos, which means he took the principle of entropy that scientists like to talk about, entropy which is the tendency of the universe toward death, he took sin out of the cosmos itself, meaning he removed entropy, so when he creates all things, makes everything new, all things new, it will be because he reversed entropy by taking sin right out of the cosmos, the universe itself, which the James Webb Focus is now focusing on with their telescope, seeing about 500,000 years, they say, after the Big Bang. They say. They see far enough back there, they're going to see God saying, Boom, let it be. <laughs> then they'll fall over, and, well, by then, God will be all in all, anyways. So, The summing up of what we're saying is this, says Hebrews 8.1. I better get rolling up, roll this up here. Where we are now, Hebrews 8.1. Now, the summing up of what we're going to say is this. We have an archpriest who is of such significance that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. The section we're about to study ends, that's the beginning. The section we're studying now, it's a definable section in Hebrews, ends in Hebrews ten eighteen. the last words of which say, there is no longer an offering for sin. No more, there's not an offering for sin left. Jesus hinted at this when he, gave, he forgave people. He said, your sins are forgiven. Nobody confessed to him. I confess I'm a sinner. Well, therefore, you're forgiven. Now, he said your sins are forgiven. Get up off that pallet and start walking. No condition. Oh, no bid for reparation. No condition. Confession, no acknowledgement, no penance, just free forgiveness. Why? Because he was anticipating the day that he would have an offering for all the sins of the whole world and there remains no more offering. There's no more offering. You can't offer him anything now. I sinned. I got to do something to make up for that. Do you know how much Christian service is somebody trying to make up for some sin they feel guilty for? And again, the sin is still unresolved and all that service is wood, hay, and stubble? The blood of Christ purifies the conscience from that stuff. The need to do works, dead works, to compensate for, to make reparation for the things I did before. They're gone. Now, I'm going to close by saying this. Redemption denotes, here's my addition to this. Redemption denotes denotes an end in the greek that would be telos the end it denotes it signifies an end in the end the son will take the kingdom that he has inherited and hand it to the father so that god will be all in all so the end of redemption is that it's panton anacaphaliosis the summary summing up of everything in christ heavens and earth visible and invisible that's the ultimate end but there's also a pen ultimate end. That means an end that's not quite ultimate, but penultimate. And you know what that is? It's the new covenant community that we call the church. The church is the penultimate end of redemption. That's the people that have in them evoked faith in Jesus Christ... They have received the spirit of God. They are a community. They aren't everything. They are simply an inkling of a new creation of all things and all people, a universal community of people in union with Christ. I will be their God and they will be my people is about everybody. I will be their God is justification. They will be my people is sanctification. You can't separate justification and sanctification, but they're two different concepts in one Reality will be hitting that in Hebrews. The ultimate end is the restoration of all things, call it that, in Acts 3.21. All the prophets talked about it. Don't tell me that's a new thing that's being taught in our time. All the prophets from time immemorial spoke of this, Peter said, at the beautiful gate after the restoration of a man to help. All the prophets from time immemorial, without exception, spoke of the restoration of all things. I would like to be in the line of the, all the prophets from time immemorial and Jesus Christ who spoke of the regeneration, te palingenesia, the new genesis, the new creation of all things. You guys, you twelve, yokels, that which... Some of these heavy philosophers have called, you know, the Christians were originally a bunch of bucolic, that means country. Yokels. They used to call us Hicks in North Bennington, Vermont. Bennington called us Hicks because we were a thousand population, they were eight thousand. And we called Shasbury, a few miles over, they were the real Hicks. Population about eight hundred. Bucolic yokels, that's what we are. God has not picked out the noble, the intellectual, the high-minded, the high-born, but he's chosen the foolish things of this world to bring to nothing, the things that seem to be something. The intellectual elites, perhaps you don't know there are 62 genders now, no, I didn't know that. I'm a bucolic yokel. And I'm a, a man. No, you're a cisgender male. What's that mean? You were born as a male. Yeah? I still am. But do you identify as a, um, yeah, I still identify as a male. Born male, still male. Yep. <laughs> you're a bucolic yokel. You're a prole. You're part of the Proletariat. That's how the first Christians were viewed. The New Covenant community was made up of us bucolic yokels at first. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. He met the literal poor. The bucolic yokels is what he was talking about. And that's just the penultimate, though. The church is just an inkling... Of what's going to happen to all mankind when God pours out his spirit on all flesh. The church is only an inkling of that. And so our message isn't you've got to do something to be justified, including believe. You have been justified and have been saved. We're preaching a done deal. Now be reconciled to the message that says you're already reconciled to God. Be reconciled to the message that says it's a done deal. You've already been reconciled to God. The church is simply made up of people who know that. And in whom God has evoked faith. Evoked belief. And faith, the primary, the primary function of faith is that it discerns the totality of God's love. Not just part of it. Not just God's love for me. Not just God's love for For me and you and for my family and for my country. God's love for all humankind. Faith by its very nature as a gift from God has a function called it discerns the totality of love. Faith works by love. And one of these times if not the very next time we're going to be maybe two times down the road. We are going to be confronted with face to face with the love of Christ. If you're part of the new covenant community, you have had faith evoked in you, you do know that the world was reconciled to God in Christ, and that's the alteration of the situation, and you're expecting the alteration of the human condition in a thing called resurrection and the restoration of all things, then you're part of the penultimate or the second to the last part of God's objective and end, not the last. And you live and I live in a time between two alterations. The alteration of the human situation that can only be perceived by faith. Because God in Christ reconciled the world to himself means that whether you see it or not, and you surely don't, if you watch the news or if you live among people, It's not apparent to you that God has reconciled the world to himself, but he has, and that's a radical change of the situation of the world. The world has been reconciled to God. It hasn't been fully redeemed yet, though. So we're in this time in between. That's why there's agony. That's why there's... Struggle. That's why there's conflict. That's why there's spiritual conflict. That's why there's adversity. That's why there's what we call an agona. It's the time in between the radical alteration of the human situation in which God has already made the human race no longer at enmity with himself but reconciled to himself and the time of the human condition's radical alteration which will be through the bodily resurrection of all the dead in Christ. And the last judgment will simply be the judgment of the cross made manifest in its gracious justice and beauty to all of creation. Looking forward to it, amen. Father, thank you for this opportunity. We pray that you'll continue to bless the schedule that we have embarked upon by faith for your guidance to us is sometimes an uncertain thing because we don't hear a voice sometimes audibly saying, do this, meet this day, meet this time, start now. But we have embarked upon Sundays, meeting Sundays, and we will embark perhaps soon on Sundays and Wednesdays live. But as we meet on these Sundays, Father, we pray that you will get us back into the groove of meeting together and assembling for the purpose of receiving encouragement from your word. And we pray that you'll create in us a positive volition, a positive willingness to constantly receive your word, to treasure it in our hearts, and therefore not to sin against you or against your way or against your grace or against your kindness. We pray that you will grant us a faith that works by love, that you'll confront us with the love of Christ, that you'll allow us to go forth as ambassadors and as the new apostolate on the level of our own time to make known the glorious good news to a world that's obviously shivering in desperation, clamoring in frustration and confusion. Bring the gospel to bear upon this generation. Grant us the grace to see this generation and everyone in it, even those that are not appealing to us in any way by sight, that we may look upon them with the love of Christ and see them as Christ saw the rich man, the rich young ruler, and beholding him, loved him. Because we perceive from this perspective of a faith that works by love. Continue to confront this assembly Continue to equip us, for that's what this message is about. It's equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Continue to equip Will and the others who work with the children to equip the children to have a shield of faith for the times that they will confront. And we commit ourselves to you afresh today as we go forth from here. Bless all who travel today, Father, in our church and family and among our friends. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for your kind attentiveness. and. We'll be back next week, the 21st, and then it's pretty soon I think we're going to start kicking in with the Wednesdays. Until then, they'll be online, and you can stay tuned for messages from Pastor Brown, right? And Pastor Messick and Phil's Power Gospel, and I see, I see you, Pastor Stewart. You're, not, you're here now. You're going to be called upon soon. All right, thanks for your attentiveness. Good to see you all. Love you all. Virtual hug. Virtual hug. Good to see you all. Take care.